0: Everyone and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason.
1: What if we go with something like K Dot? You know, like Kendrick Lamar. He calls himself K Dot. Would that work?
0: You mean like T Dot?
1: Yeah. Would do you like if would you like T Dot? Do you think that could be my new name? No. All right. Well, until then, my name is Todd Hixenbach.
0: And today we have a great episode for you. We are going to be talking with Liz Bohannon, who is the founder of Seiko Designs. And Seiko Designs is a fashion brand based in Uganda and through the sale of beautiful handbags, accessories, and leather sandals, they create opportunity and community for women globally.
1: So one of the things that's really exciting about Liz is that she's somebody who didn't just um, venture into nonprofit world. She said, no, I actually think that there's the opportunity to be able to create business um, in in this country that is t- that typically people who start nonprofits are going into. And instead she's empowering women by giving them jobs, giving them skills and allowing them to enter the workforce and even to be able to go to school and be able to continue their education. And so she's a person who flipped it on its head and said, hey, let's look at this from a different perspective.
0: And we're gonna be joining Our conversation with Liz Bohannon about her story and Seiko Design right now. Well, Liz, welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. We're so excited to have you on today.
2: Thank you. I'm so excited to be here.
0: You know, just as we get started, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit of your journey of what got you um, interested in, you know, going to Uganda and then uh, leading to um, starting Seiko Designs as well? Yeah,
2: so I went to the University of Missouri and studied journalism, and throughout my time in university, I became increasingly interested in issues that were facing women and girls who were living in extreme poverty and in conflict and post-conflict zones, and so I went to Uganda. um, I was actually, right after school, couldn't really figure out a way to kind of use my passion and interest and also get a job. So I uh, took a corporate job in St. Louis, the city that I grew up in. And about three months in to that job, I quit to move uh, to Uganda without a job, without really, (laughs) really a vision for what that was going to look like, but really with the goal of learning um, to just learn more about issues on the ground that we're actually facing women and girls. I realized that I had a lot of kind of head knowledge and information, but my community that I was building here in the US was completely unaffected by these issues. And so for me, it was really important to kind of learn firsthand and in a relational context, what on earth was going on, what was helping, what wasn't helping, and and kind of how I could be a part of that. And so I showed up to Uganda and uh, did a lot of just that, a lot of learning, a lot of kind of asking questions and following rabbit trails. and I ended up ended up just really kind of my whole world and paradigm for thinking about how we can make an impact specifically for women and girls living in extreme poverty kind of shifted when I started working for a nonprofit youth development organization, an incredible organization that um, really helps find some of the brightest students in the country that come from backgrounds of extreme poverty, and then equip them to, to be the next generation of leaders. And as I was working with this nonprofit, um, it became clear that they were facing a pretty big um, financial challenge. And specifically, the, the women in between high school and university were struggling to find jobs and um, couldn't earn money to go to university. And so of everything that I call or of everything that I saw when I in Uganda, that that to me was the most compelling. You know, this idea that um here are twenty five of the brightest women in the country and they're not going to continue on to university and become leaders in their community simply because they can't find a way to kind of bridge this nine month gap. And so long story short, I tried a bunch of different things. I first wanted to start a charity and then really realized that we have to be thinking about solving um, some of the world's most interesting and pressing challenges with marketplace solutions i i had this this kind of realization that of all of the nonprofits and there are a lot that exist in uganda it seems like Seventy five percent of them wouldn't need to exist if people just had jobs and were paid a fair wage had health insurance and could afford to put their kids in school, et cetera, et cetera. So I became really interested in this idea of using business to create an impact in areas of the world that were kind of traditionally left to the nonprofit sector. And so I tried to start a chicken farm. And that failed pretty miserably, and uh, you know, naturally, I moved from uh, chickens to sandals. And I uh, I designed a pair of, of sandals that we could make using locally sourced materials in Uganda. Prototyped it out, kind of cobbled together a, a pretty rudimentary supply chain, and went to the school and hired three young women: Mary, Mercy, and Rebecca. And uh, committed to these young women that if they made sandals for the next nine months, that they would go to university in the fall. And uh, that's kind of how it all started.
0: Well, I'm just wondering, what was like your family and friends reaction to, you know, you saying, hey, I want to go to Uganda and start start this?
2: <laughs> um. Well. There were two primary reactions and both i think can be summed up or or were um were manifested differently in my mom and my dad. So my my mom of course was just so concerned with my safety and well-being. You know, here I was a 22-year-old who had really never never traveled before. Certainly never went to Africa before um and saying i'm going to move and i don't know anybody and i don't really know what i'm going to do so she had a lot of kind of like safety well-being concerns and then my dad kind of represented the other reaction which was like are you crazy like it's the height of the recession you have a good job you have a masters degree you're going to quit and move to africa without a plan um so that was that basically kind of summed up the two primary reactions <laughs> um so I would say there wasn't a ton of excitement or support in the beginning. Luckily, I would say after eight years, uh, most of the people in my life have come around.
0: Was, was there something that helped you kind of, because I'm sure, you know, kind of going it from what it sounds like, kind of on, like on your own, like, was there anything oh, in particular yeah, yeah. that helped you like, you know, I, I just feel like I need to do this?
2: You know, it was to me just the moment I kind of had that realization that it's like, there's something in my life that I say I'm really passionate about being women and girls living in extreme poverty and conflict and post-conflict zones, but yet that I, in my day-to-day, if you took out what I just talk about and what I kind of run my mouth about, my life is not a reflection of being passionate or interested in that. That was a very compelling and convicting moment in time for me where I was like, okay, Either you kind of need to just like give it up and stop running your mouth about all this stuff, or you need to do something that beyond what you're talking about shows that that you're building a life um, that is reflective of what you say that you care about. And so, once I kind of had that realization, of course, it's never fun when people doubt you or question you. And of course, I had moments where I was like, maybe I am crazy, maybe this is a terrible idea. Uh, but the voice inside of me that kind of led me to that that conclusion in that moment was a lot stronger than those kind of outside voices um and so I think it was a matter of kind of trying to isolate that voice within myself and not give as much weight uh to to kind of the voices outside
0: do you remember like a specific moment whenever you know maybe it was in the first couple of months of you being in Uganda to where you just saw you know maybe maybe the brokenness or really just your, your heart really broke specifically for the women of Uganda.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I, since I had never been to a developing economy before, I mean, it was full on drinking from a fire hose. This was my first few months in Uganda were my first few months. You know, it wasn't like I grew up traveling or I'd seen a lot. And so, um, So all in a lot of what I was doing was just kind of like asking questions, meeting people traveling around the country. Um, And I would say that, yeah, there was a a pretty consistent sense of um, just heartbrokenness. I will also say that I was really surprised by how much life and excitement and joy and hope there is. So I think it was kind of consistently balanced with, like, this is by no means a sad country or a mm-hmm. sad, you know, uh, a sad place. It actually, I don't know, in some ways it really, it, it's, it, when I talk to people who are like, oh, yeah, I've been to Uganda before, it's so sad. Um, I actually find it to be, like, a little bit offensive. <laughs> because it's like, yes, there are really sad things happening, and they're really heartbreaking Gut wrenching, you know, situations that are facing uh, that are facing women and girls um, all across the country that are facing, you know, everybody in Uganda. But it doesn't take very long before of having like actual, real, and authentic relationships with people before it stops being overwhelmingly sad and before it's like, oh yeah, this is a this is you know a heart wrenching situation. I mean, I, I remember meeting a young woman who grew up in northern Uganda. She had four brothers, maybe five brothers. And in the course of kind of the conflict in northern Uganda with the Lord's Resistance Army, every single one of her brothers had been kidnapped um, by the army. I mean, just like she was the only kid in her family that that kind of was not kidnapped. And on the one hand, it's just—I mean, I cannot imagine, cannot it cannot fathom that heartbreak of like not only did you lose all of your siblings, but you lost them in this like horrific. Horrible conflict. Imagining the life that they're now leading, likely as child soldiers in a rebel army group, um, is horrifying and it's so heartbreaking. And yet, through a relationship with that young woman, also just being equally as taken aback by her just con- sense of optimism and hope, her sense of I'm like I would literally just be a-, a puddle. You'd have to put me in an institution, and the rest of my life would be basically just trying not to be sad and crazy. And yet here you are, like as a young woman pursuing your education, having these huge dreams about, you know, going to university and becoming a leader in your community. So I felt like the heartbreak was consistently met with also just a sense of respect and awe of the people Mm -hmm. that I was able to kind of start building relationships with. Um, And I think honestly, that's what's led me to such a long term engagement with Uganda. I think it's like, for people that kind of show up and all they see is the, the heartbreak. It, it can become so overwhelming and so disillusioning, but that's also really one dimensional and that's not a really accurate picture of the entire of the entire situation. So I feel incredibly grateful that um, the people that I was able to meet really early on were were also an incredible encouragement and challenge and, and inspiration to me. Mm-hmm.
0: What are, what are some of the things that you do to help combat like the, the savior mentality that can be developed mm. from like help, like from helping people? And, you know, instead of them, you know, depending solely on you and on Seiko, but to really helping you empower them instead, what are the things that you do to help empower them?
2: Yeah, I think not to kind of beat the beat the same horse. But to me, it's all about relationships. It's like it's about seeing the women that we're working with as whole human beings who were on the one hand born into situations that are incredibly inequitable and unjust. But they as women are incredibly strong and bright and courageous. And I actually have a lot to learn from them. I promise I'm not talking about learning so much just because i'm on the learners podcast but i guess it's a good fit um but yeah kind of having this posture and mentality of learning from one another is the key to i think combating that white savior mentality so i think one of the things that we do at seiko is be, and, and this is where i become very passionate about using a, a business model because the the dynamics in business are quite different than the dynamics in charity whereas when you run a charity, there kind of by nature are two groups of people that are involved in that charity there's the givers, the philanthropists, the donors, the volunteers, whoever it is, and then there's the receivers, the people who are kind of on the on the other side of that and While I think that there are I, and I absolutely sit in in a viewpoint that there are for sure problems in our society that need charities, and there's a lot of charities that I think are really really well run and Manage to do this well but the overall dynamic of charities especially kind of western run charities in east africa rely really heavily on this kind of giver receiver dichotomy and i think that that's a really dangerous dichotomy to exist in for more than a short season because i think what it ends up doing is it kind of labels entire people groups and individuals as like well you are you are the receiver in this situation which means like you're your role is to come and to receive and to, you know, be very grateful or do whatever we, the donors or the philanthropists want to see you doing in, in, in reaction to what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And our role is to be the giver, to show up and to out of our, you know, good hearts to, to give to you. And again, I think in, in certain situations, it's okay, but I really believe that the world was, was created and in a way that we're all supposed to be givers and receivers and that that's actually not supposed to be like a a solid, uh, label that we take for a lifetime, but yet, uh, in seasons, right. Where it's like, there are times where I'm giving and you're receiving. And then if we're really in community and we're really doing life together, we know that eventually that's going to flip and that there's going to be something that you're in need of that I'm able to give to you. And so at Seiko, we, we try really, really hard to be very clear, even just down to the language of kind of how we talk about our team in Uganda. Like these women are our colleagues. They are our manufacturing arm of our company. They're our partners. Um, they're not beneficiaries. They're not recipients. Um, and so we really try to kind of um, promote this this idea that if you work at Seiko, if you're a part of Seiko, and that doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter if you make sandals, if you cook food, or on the other side of the world, if you are uh, buying our products, we're all a part of we're kind of all a part of team Seiko and we all sink or swim together. Either Seiko works and everybody that's a part of it benefits or it doesn't work and we're all <laughs> and we're all out of luck. But it really kind of creates this like this team this team mentality. Um and so just even kind of in how we train we um 400 women across the country that sell the product um, and even even um, down to kind of how we encourage our team to talk about what's happening in Uganda. We really hope to promote uh, dignity and respect for every person that's a part of our team. And for us, that means um, engaging our Ugandan team as exactly that. Our colleagues, our teammates, they are the women and the team that it's like if they didn't show up to work every day to make beautiful products and and to meet deadlines and to work overtime when it's required and to solve Really complex supply chain issues and quality, you know, control issues. Then here on the U.S., we wouldn't get to do our jobs. We wouldn't get to show up and sell the product and build this beautiful brand. And so, it's actually kind of that um, that sense of reliance on one another that I think is the greatest um, kind of greatest combat we have against that that kind of white savior mentality fuel. And especially now that we've launched this new model where women here in the US are selling the products and they're earning money off of that and they're able to contribute to a lifestyle and financial goals that they have. It's a pretty remarkable thing, like that, that our team here in the US says, like, in order for me to get to send my daughter to NASA space camp this summer, Mm -hmm. I need you woman in, you know, Uganda to show up and do your job. And we find that there are some people that are like, a little bit uncomfortable with that dynamic, that it's like, wait, you're making money off of these women. (laughs) Um, Whereas I find that to be an incredible thing that I really believe is going to allow for a sustainable, really life giving Mutually beneficial, dignified relationship between us and our team in Uganda for the long haul is because of that is because we really rely on
0: each other mm-hmm. what what have you found to be the response from like the Ugandan government um, <laughs> Ugandan
2: government loves Seiko. Go, actually it's almost to the point where it's pretty comical. I mean, I think a lot of governments in uh developing economies are realizing like hey. If we want our countries to grow, if we want our people to have jobs, uh, we need to be investing in businesses. And so we are very much so seen as kind of a representation of that, of um, of foreign investment, but that foreign investment that's actually taking a lot of um an approach that offers a lot of dignity and respect, as opposed to kind of, uh, you know, we're going to come in and use your land and use your people. um, And instead, really trying to build really sustainable, dignified workplaces. And so we actually had this amazing experience where the president of Uganda found out about Seiko, he saw our products, actually, and literally looked at our products and was like, there's no way these are made in Uganda. (laughs) They're way too high quality, like I've never seen anything like this happening in our country. And uh, the person who was showing them the products was like, no, I I assure you, I promise you these were made in Uganda. And so uh, a couple weeks later, unannounced, he showed up to our factory in Uganda and was basically like, you take, you prove it, prove it, taking me to the place where these products are being made. Um, and I, you know, not only do I not believe that these products are being made in Uganda, I certainly don't believe that they're being made by girls, you know, like that's, that is, there's no way that that's happening. And so he showed up unannounced, you know, like a, a caravan of black, I don't know, Escalades or Suburbans <laughs> or some kind of SUV showed up at our factory and it was the president and his entourage and they toured the factory. And, and from then on have been actually great advocates of our work, um, have been really, really supportive in making sure that they're helping create, whether that's, uh, you know, dealing with import export duties and policies to um, helping us make sure that we're able to procure land in the right areas. And um, they've been really supportive.
0: You know, one of the things, That you know, just as we were uh, looking at Seiko, that I found really interesting is that you know women don't stay in the in the program for you know their whole life; they actually graduate from it. And so I was just wondering, you know, what does your relationship with the women who have already graduated the program look like?
2: Yeah, so we've had um, eighty-six women who have graduated through our program and who are out in the world. So either they're still in university or they're in their first jobs, kind of starting to build their build their careers. And we love, I mean, some of our greatest joy is seeing those women out in the world. So we have a get to, we try to get together about once a year. Now these women, again, are all over the country and kind of like building, building their lives. Um, But we've got someone on staff who kind of part of her job is um, making sure we're staying up to date with what's going on, where are you at? um, What are the challenges you're experiencing and how can kind of Seiko support you in that? But um, every time we go back to Uganda, like I, I, took a trip of our 10 top to East Africa um, several months ago. And it was so fun. We got to have like an alumni dinner and women from all over the country came. Um, and we were all able to hang out for an evening together out. Um, and so it's been really, really fun to see them kind of grow and flourish in in this season of life.
1: Hey, Liz, um, what, are, what are some of the challenges you face as an organization that empowers women? I think that's a tough thing, I think. Uh, kind of in the current climate for a lot of folks to to think about, especially as you think it in terms of like a, a business. So, what are some of the challenges that you face um, when it, as an organization that empowers women?
2: Um, I would say the biggest challenge is that uh, everything, for the most part, in culture, it weren't like swimming in an uphill, uphill tide. No, yeah, we're swimming in a
0: What is that phrase I'm looking for? You're swimming against the current. Yeah,
2: there we go. Fighting an uphill battle, swimming against the current. I got my uh, athletic metaphors mixed there. Um, So, I mean, so, and it's so, 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 so deeply culturally embedded. I mean, I think that we're seeing here, and it's funny to me, I, I interact with people a lot of times who are like, you know, bless you for going to the parts of the world where gender inequality exists. Um, And it's like, well, yeah, it it definitely exists in a different way and and in some ways to a different degree in Uganda. But look at our own country and like look at the battles um, and kind of the moments that we're having 100 years later that we didn't think that we would still be having our conversations that are still needing to be had. but. The reality is cultural beliefs and societal beliefs run so deep to our core, and you have to have a group of people who are incredibly committed to doing incredibly different, difficult, self-reflective work regarding bias, regarding discrimination, regarding kind of the belief systems that they've grown up with, to realize that in so many of the ways um, that bias exists is so, it's so hard to detect, and it's so invisible, and that Oftentimes, the very, you know, group of people who are in kind of these systems of oppression don't realize that they have their own biases. You know, I I think I realized I think I thought when I went to Uganda, the situation would be, well, you know, there's hundreds and millions of women who are being oppressed by these systems and they all know it. And they're all just waiting for an opportunity to um, to kind of rise out of that system. And and what I found was actually a lot more similar to, to issues that I've encountered here in the U.S., which is like, no, actually, the the women that we work with, in some ways, hold those beliefs just as deeply as the men in their community, that this is a this is a system wide issue, you know, in Uganda, about 80% in certain areas of the country, both men and women believe it's morally acceptable for a man to physically abuse his wife. That's the nature of the relationship oh, wow. is that she is property. And therefore, it's it's his moral. Not only is it acceptable, it's in some ways an obligation um, for him to use physical violence uh, to, to control his wife. And that's a belief that a lot of women in Uganda hold. because. They're growing up in the same society that's saying like this is this is how families work and this is how societies work, and this is what we must do in order to kind of maintain the the law and order of the land if you will and so having those realizations of like this is not a this is not just kind of a one sided issue this is really, really deeply and culturally embedded, and so for us it's about how do we how do we slowly But surely take steps in in the right direction of helping to create environments and spaces where kind of a new narrative and new rules are are established. But I think the most difficult thing is, is that that doesn't happen overnight. And anybody who says that it can or that there's some silver bullet um, has never tried before. And so we're in it for the long haul. And, and, our, and our belief is really like we want to, we, we found our kind of place in the universe and, and we figured out how to do what we can specifically do really well. And now it's a matter of about just like being faithful towards that and, and taking small steps to making massive change.
1: How do you like begin to, how do you do that? So how do you, you know, how do you work with, with these attitudes and these mentalities that people have to continue to be able to, to do what you guys do um, but also create the change and begin to help mm-hmm. make these mind shifts that people need to have. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think a, a lot of it is comes to just meeting people where they're at, right? So instead of, and I think a lot of kind of what's happening in the advocacy world, and that has become so heightened in, in America, specifically in our political climate, is it's so divisive, right? So it's like, well, this is what we're fighting for. And this is what we believe is right. And you can fight with us. But only if you agree with these 19 points and we have to be completely aligned. And if you don't agree, then we're not on the same team and you're the other and we're now somehow fighting against you. And I don't believe that that's the most effective way to create long term social change. I think that there's a place in society, probably a a kind of limited place for for more of that kind of um, advocacy. But our approach has been like we meet people where they're at. So when a woman comes to work for Seiko and she holds these beliefs instead of saying like what you're not an empowered enlightened like liberated woman or or even you don't even want to be those things well you know this isn't a place for you and instead we say like hey let's let's figure out what we can agree on and a lot of times it's like we can agree that you need a job (laughs) you need a job to feed your family and to take care of your kids and to have access to health care and we have that so like come be a part of that and through this relationships and through this community you're going to see other women in your community that um, are, are doing things that you were taught and grew up to believe were exclusively for um, men. So it, an example of that is in Uganda, there's like a pretty held belief system that anything that involves machinery, that's like man's work. It's typically more specialized. It's typically higher paid. So it's it's absolutely kind of an economic justice issue that women are kind of left out of of this sector of the economy and so the first time we ever got a machine we brought a machine we expected our whole team to be like oh my gosh this is awesome we're like growing and we're you know become become more efficient and profitable because of this and we had a whole bunch of women that were like not me I'm not doing it I'm not working on that um and so it, first of all it was a lot of conversation about like why do you believe that where does this belief system come from and a lot of times and I think I see this in the U.S. all of the time. The moment you kind of dig beneath that surface layer, if people are honest and brave enough to really evaluate their belief systems, um, it gets pretty hard to explain things, right? Where it's like, well, I don't know where that came from. I don't know why I totally believe. I have this gut feeling against that. But if I really examine myself and my belief systems... I don't really know that that's logical or where that came from. So it starts with conversation. And then I think it starts, um, you, you know, we we create the environment where women are able to see other women who have kind of come through that belief system, who are on the other side, who are doing something that's super brave and countercultural. And um, and women see that and go like, oh, well, if she can do that, and if she can do that, and she's thriving in in that, like, maybe maybe I can do that too. And it kind of starts to create this contagion and a wave of like, oh, maybe, maybe that is for me.
0: What made you want to start, you know, Seiko versus, you know, partnering with someone else or working with another um, organization or something like that?
2: You know, for me, it was really relational. It was like, there was a specific group of 25 women who were graduating from high school and needed uh, a job opportunity and needed kind of this link and this bridge from high school to university. And no one, no one was that, no, you know, no other company or organization had figured something out or was working with these young women at the time. And so, um, because it was so specific for me and so relational and nothing in this tiny, tiny, tiny corner of the universe, I think, My approach might have been different if I had shown up to Uganda and said, I just want to start an organization that makes this impact for anybody. um, I could have definitely taken a different approach, but for me, it it really was born out of relationship and it was born out of like um, kind of this macro issue of global gender inequality becoming a micro issue of here's 25 women and they need to figure out, we need to figure out how to get them to university. Um, And so it didn't make, you know, I was just like, well, no one else is raising their hand. So like, this will be my thing. I'll, I'll dive in.
0: What, what are some of the things that you've done to go from really doing this, you know, by yourself and you being like the, the main person who is working on, you know, Seiko to really just creating a business and creating a business model around that what have been some of the key, you know, steps or actions to help you build a business around this?
2: Yeah, so the transition for me was, uh, I mean, it, it started with a huge ideological shift of like, oh, wait, uh, you know, I, I mean, I just came from the mindset that I think a lot of Americans exist in where it's like, oh, if you want to help in, especially in a place like Africa, and especially, you know, with marginalized groups of people, you have to start a charity or nonprofit Um, And so for me, it was a huge ideological shift to go like, oh, not only is that not true, but actually businesses are really well suited to solve some of the world's most interesting challenges. And then from then on out, honestly, it has been a matter of finding people that um I can convince to be a part of what we're doing that are smarter than me, that are uh, more educated, that have more interesting experience um, so that they can use their skills and their sweet spots to make this difference. I mean, I think the reality is, and any person that is an entrepreneur knows this, um, that not only can I not do everything by myself, but like, that's not good. For anybody um, but finding people who are really gifted in their area of excellence and, um, and and helping just to create the space for them to be really good at what they're doing um, and building it building a team and building a team of really well-rounded really excellent um, uh, team members is a, is a huge part has been a huge part of my journey
0: you know if you were to go back you know just to 22 year old Liz and you could do it all over again, what are some of the things that you would do? exactly the same and then what are some of the things that you would do differently in starting Seiko
1: you know I hope that
2: I don't know that I would actually do anything different I could tell you a long list of things that I would could have done different that would have helped avoid super costly mistakes or that would have you know taken away that costly both time and money I could name a lot of things that would actually probably take away a lot of like really emotionally distressing things that we, you know, have had experienced and gone through and questions that we've asked about, you know, where we're at and our model and in our impact. Um, I don't think I would get rid of any of those things because I feel so grateful to be on the other side of those things because I know a hundred percent we're going to continue to make mistakes. And I feel like we have this bank of mistakes and solutions that we've built up over the last eight years that we get to pull from now when we're making mistakes. And that's everything from actual kind of like skills and experiences where it's like something comes up and we're like, oh, uh, well, we've been through this before and, and we've dealt with this. So let's, you know, let's kind of pull from that, but also even emotionally and psychologically to kind of have this bank of like You've been in this place before. You've been really upset or you've been super discouraged or really disillusioned or really freaked out that you did this thing and it was going to end the company. And yet, like, look, you figured it out. You made it through. And so I I find that kind of bank of experiences incredibly rich. And I'm really grateful for them because I know as we continue to grow, we're going to continue to mess up and we're going to continue to have missteps. So I'm not sure that I would do anything different.
1: Yeah. So, Liz, I guess as we're starting to wrap this thing up, how has your perspective changed since you started Seiko? On what? Just on, on this, the mission in other, in other countries, on business in other countries, your perspective on equality issues, um, just wh- however you wanted to speak into that. And how has your perspective changed on those things?
2: I, yeah, I think for me, the biggest perspective shift is kind of that paradigm shift that I had eight years ago. And just, I believe more now than ever that business plays an absolutely critical role in helping bring justice and equality to to the earth. Um, and that so many of the problems that nonprofits are kind of tasked with solving with not a lot of resources um, are issues that business leaders and consumers need to pay attention to. Um, And I'm incredibly hopeful and excited about what happens when we can kind of harness that mentality the 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 power of business and the power of consumerism for us is huge. If we can get customers to even think about even if it's not their entire purchasing patterns, but if consumers shifted 10 to 20% of their purchasing powers, towards making ethical, ideological kind of statements with their dollars, that would make, create a massive shift in, in the global economy. And it's incredibly, incredibly exciting to me. And I'm, I'm really grateful to kind of be a part of, um, of exploring and, and pioneering what that looks like.
0: Liz, just as you know, we're getting ready to wrap up, one question that we always love to ask our guests is, what are you learning right now?
2: what am I learning right now? I am in the thick probably of learning through our fellows program. So through this direct to consumer model. So women purchase samples from us and then they go out and use our products to build their own social enterprises. And because of that, it's really different than building a completely direct to consumer model because a lot of my role is now Not only how do I run a successful company, but how do I equip these four hundred women to run their own successful companies, and how do I kind of take what I've learned over the last eight years and then distill that out um, that makes sense for you know a woman in Dallas, Texas, or a woman in you know Connecticut that is starting, running, and scaling her own social enterprise, and so really kind of I've been um, forced in the best way to take a lot of these principles that I've been leading out of over the last eight years and to really like crystallize them and articulate them and get them out of you know out of my head out of the head of my leadership team here here at Seiko and kind of into the heads of four hundred women across the United States um and so that that's what I'm learning and and like how to do that effectively um and that's been a really really fun fun thing to be diving into
0: what what are Can you give us some examples of the types of principles that you're trying to teach to the women?
2: Sure, yeah. So we actually have seven principles that we've developed that we've kind of said these are our core principles of um, of leadership. I can speak to a couple of them. One of my favorites is curiosity over criticism. Kind of this idea that when you're faced with challenges or when you're faced with failure – Um, there's two ways that you can respond to that. You can respond critically by saying um, either internally critically or externally critically, right? Internally critically, meaning, ah, I suck. I'm so dumb. I failed or I got this rejection because I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not whatever it is. And I suck and I should just give up. That's internal criticism. External criticism being, well, this failed or they said no, because they're stupid and they don't get it and they're, you know they they or or they didn't understand me or this is their problem um and or this was a really poorly run event whatever it is you can respond to problems in, in the opposite way i would say is with a sense of curiosity and so approaching that situation and going interesting okay my objective failed you know i went into the situation what i wanted out of it was this and this is what happened Interesting. I wonder why that happened. I wonder if there was something about what I said that I could have communicated differently. I wonder if there's something about how this um, this event was run that if that was changed it would kind of have changed the dynamic of this situation or, or how that went I'm gonna I'm gonna be a, I'm gonna be a tinker and I'm gonna be an experimenter and how interesting that I have this opportunity I'm gonna do this again and I'm gonna change something or I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna look at this in a new way and I'm gonna see if that changes the results and if it does like wow that's like a fascinating really cool thing and if it doesn't I'm going to go back to the drawing board and I'm going to figure out and, and, but I'm going to constantly be kind of asking these questions and having this, um, this spirit of, of curiosity. And, and, and I think that leaders who are curious and who default towards being curious and asking questions and seeing themselves as like, wow, I get the opportunity to kind of be this like tinkerer and like, you know, and solve things and experiment as opposed to being someone who, when they, Reach, failure, go, like either I suck or the world sucks. Um, that Those are the types of leaders that I want to build. And so that's kind of one of our key principles of, of kind of our, our core seven principles of leadership is uh, curiosity over criticism.
0: And are the rest of your principles just on the Seiko website or where where are those at?
2: You know, that's a great question. They're actually not available to the public um, at this point. They may be at some point, um, but it's something that's more internal that we um, are developing here kind of for our, our HQ team and then for the women who um, work with Seiko out in the field as Seiko Fellows. And this is like a very new, um, as as I mentioned in you know, your question about what are you learning right now, this is like something that we're very much so in the process of We've articulated out our seven core principles, and now we're in the process of kind of like distilling those out. And we're actually kind of rolling them out officially for the first time. We've got a leadership summit that's happening in January for our top leaders from all over the country. And that's where we'll kind of be rolling these out in, in full. Um, so we're very much kind of in the midst of it.
0: Gotcha. Well, hey, Liz, if people want to continue to learn from you, if they want to find out more about Seiko and get involved there, how can they do that?
2: Um, they can go to www.seco and that's S S E K O designs.com. And they can learn all about the products that we sell, the impact that we make and, uh, the opportunity to join our team.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast.
2: Great. Thank you guys. It was so fun. Thanks for having me.
1: So Caleb, what coming out of that interview is something that you took away?
0: I think there is a couple of things. One is just the idea of how we're all givers and receivers. And how, you know, there's a tendency, you know, especially in the United States, I think, is that we can be we can view ourselves as givers and that nobody else maybe has the potential to give back to us. But really recognizing that we all we need to be both givers and receivers and be humble enough to be willing to receive from other people as well. and not just thinking that we're the savior and that we're able to get like to give and help other people, but we need help ourselves.
1: One of the things that I thought was interesting was, um, the leader of the Ugandan government who, whenever, whenever that he was shown these products actually didn't believe that a women made them and B it could be something that was done in Uganda. Um, and so I, I found that interesting because it speaks to some things, right, that, that they're working on and trying to, to figure out that, <clears throat> yeah, people in, these, in this area of the world actually have the capacity and don't just need a white savior to come in and give them money, but they need people to help them learn skills and be able to develop skills to be able to support their families and to be able to continue to progress.
0: And then the other thing that really stood out to me is just the idea of valuing curiosity, over criticism and instead of you know either looking internally or looking you know out beyond ourselves and being critical of what happened of genuinely being curious and finding out okay why why did things go that way why didn't things go the way that we expected them to what could i have done differently instead of being harsh and very critical
1: and what a great leadership um, principle to think about, right? So if you lead a team in any capacity, or even if you are a part of a team, um, what, what an opportunity to begin to think of things with curiosity rather than with criticism. I think it's a wonderful way for us to be able to begin to flip the leadership dynamic on its head and say, Hey, we're going to be more comfortable with failure and we're going to be more comfortable with mistakes because we're just going to come at them from a curiosity standpoint and we're going to dissect them and we're going to figure out how we can do it better next time rather than leading with criticism.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, make sure that you don't miss our next episode as well. And the best way to make sure that you don't miss our next episode is by subscribing to our podcast on whatever podcast player you use, whether it's Google play, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever it may be. Subscribe to the podcast. And then also, if you learned something you know from this episode or from previous episodes, leave us a rating and write a review of our podcast on whatever podcast player you use. So rate
1: of, and review.
0: It's one of the best ways that you can show us your appreciation and kind of what you're learning as well. And then also hit us up on social media this week and let us know some of the things that you learned from maybe this episode or just what you're learning in general. Maybe it's a book that you've been reading or a podcast that you've really been interested in Let us know what you're learning and who you're learning from. Thanks so much for listening to the Learner's Corner podcast today. Until next time, keep learning and keep growing.
1: Deuces, y'all.